Hello and welcome to Business Without Bullshit. I'm Andy Ori and alongside me is my co-host Pippa Sturt. Hi Andy. Hello Pippa and today we are joined by Paddy Willis. Hello Paddy, how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you Andy, thank you Pippa. Delighted to be here. So Paddy, tell our listeners what's keeping you most busy at the moment. What are you up to? So... Uh, the business that I'm co-founder of and now chairman, Mission Ventures, um, we have just launched a very exciting diversity program with Sainsbury's. So all the work we do is with food and drink startups, basically challenger brands. You know, can challenger brands change the world? And we believe they can. So we've just launched a diversity program. So they're looking to back uh, a handful of black-led startups in the food and drink space um, to get into their supply chain. They've only got three in national distribution currently out of the thousands of businesses they work with. So that's really exciting. Um, we've had over 250 applications already in the last two weeks since we opened up. So what is it? It's, it's, you're offering investment? So, so it's an accelerated program and they're putting a decent chunk of change on the table to be allocated as grant money. Okay, so an accelerated program meaning you, they come into a space, you give them education, you connect them with interesting people. Yeah, so we're partnered in this case because, frankly, if you look at our uh, you look at our webpage, missionventures.co.uk, you won't see a lot of diversity on there. Um, we're sort of balanced now, male and female, but you know we're a white middle class bunch of people. So uh, we're fa- partnered with a great organisation called Foundervine, who specialise in helping develop opportunities for uh, minority groups with larger organizations. So in this case, they're partnered with us, with Sainsbury's, to help. So they're going to be working on, and they're already helped enormously in, in, in helping to build the network, applica- the applications we've received. But they're also working on the community evolution and understanding the kind of lived experience with the founders. And But we're the guys with the industry know-how, the industry experience. So it's food and drink. Food and drink, yeah. But particularly for um, those those with less opportunities, I guess, or, yeah. you know. How many people are you, you thinking you're going to put through the program? Well, we're targeting uh, nine to go through the program. Um, at the end of that, um, that'll be like a 90-day... Nine companies. Nine companies. Uh, at the end of that sort of 90-day intensive accelerator program that we'll be leading, which will include some sort of joint work, workshop stuff, but most of it's going to be one-on-one with the individual founders and their businesses. Sainsbury's would like to see, you know, three up to maybe five of those coming into their supply chain next year. Are all the supermarkets doing this kind of thing? No, no, this is the first first of its kind. So will it be a sort of competition, almost like a pitch competition at the end for Yeah, people? there's going to be a demo day. But we've, in fact, today just been doing a tasting session um, with a decent number of the brands to actually sort of figure out. Fun. Yeah, it's great. Unless yeah, any fun. of them were Quite really a lot of disgusting. Tequila, actually. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. Tequila. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I, if I, yeah, if I, you know, give me a kick, at, you know, in the course of the day if, uh, if needs be. But um, no, so yeah, so that, that's been, that's been great. It's one of the perks of the job, I guess, is to get together to and drink trial, tequila trial heavily. These, like, trial these products. Are you passionate particularly on that subject? Is that, you know, I mean... Uh, yeah, I'm passionate about trying they to help to level because up. because you know about food and drink. You've got, you know, which we'll get into, but yeah. Yeah, so I've, I've got, I mean, I've got a very diverse career. Um, only about half it makes it onto LinkedIn because I just think people wouldn't believe me otherwise. But um, so, uh, yeah, so that, that, you know, this whole concept of how do you help entrepreneurs? I, I, I once... Uh, heard uh, um, the Australian entrepreneur and speaker Daniel Priestley um, talking about his passion for mountain walking, mountain climbing, and he may give a really interesting analogy. He said, "You know, when when you're a you know when you're up on a mountain and you're heading for the peak and you get there, he says the next thing you know you you take in the view, you look around, but your focus then is absolutely on the ridge that takes you to the next next peak." And he says, "But if you actually were to stop and look behind you and look down, you see a whole bunch of other people who are following up the mountain." 
And he says, it takes nothing for you to say, hey, mate, I wouldn't go left there. I go, right, I tried the left. It wasn't great, you know, but under, you know whatever. And, and so I think the point he was trying to make, Andy, was that if you are in that position where you are maybe only five minutes ahead of somebody, the value you can offer back to them oh, is huge. always, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and the French, I started my working life out in, in Bordeaux in the wine industry, and the French have a fantastic expression, which I've not really ever found a good English version of, which is, um, il faut toujours renvoyer l'ascenseur. So if you that sounds good anyway. Take a, you, you get in the lift, you go up to the sixth floor, or whatever. When you come out, if you know there's somebody downstairs, or you think the next person who wants to lift is likely to be down, you just press ground as you leave the as you leave the lift, and it'll that's take it the back translation down. of the French. Well, that, that's the translation <laughs> of the French. Yeah. So and, 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 that it, it, felt a lot shorter. <laughs> that's a great thing. You do those little kind. Of, it's very Japanese. It's very Japanese. You know that. Think as a think as a community. You know, don't, don't steal from someone because that means someone's going to steal from you. you yeah. Know? Yeah. It's kind of a karma thing. It's just I, I just think it's a nice experience. I mean, you know, you scratch mine, I'll scratch yours. There's actually something in it for everybody in that. And, that, and that's not the same thing. It's I like, a self, I like, it's a I like thing your to point do. that you you may not be very far ahead of them, just a, few, a moment ahead of them. But that's that's an incredibly valuable. Perspective. But a lot of founders don't feel like they have anything to add, particularly if things haven't gone that well. You know, they kind of feel like, oh well, you know, like I had one that I asked on this podcast. He said, oh no, I can't come. I can't really come on the podcast because it's not gone well, and you know, we're now winding the business up. And it was kind of like, actually, you'd be the perfect person to come on the podcast. And it did go well for years. It was a very successful business for years. And, you know, but you're absolutely right. All those things that went wrong are really useful for somebody else to hear. One of the main things they say about American culture or whatever is the embracement of failure and failure is not failure. And and, Brit- and Germany's absolutely terrible at this. If you ever fail in a startup business, which they have not many of, that's it, no one even talks to you, you know? Whereas Britain's somewhere in between, we're sort of, I think, you know, in places like London, we, 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 we try. But interestingly, his response was actually not just wrong as in he would have been interesting, but it was wrong in sense of he shouldn't be ashamed of it. No, you know? no, I know. There's but nothing I, to be ashamed of. I think of. a lot of founders have that kind of imposter syndrome and think, oh, I'm not yeah. doing it very well. You know, you get the kind of megalomaniacs with that probably somewhere on the spectrum who think that everything they do is amazing. But you get the other ones that are kind of constantly thinking they've fucked up. You know, you, inevitably in the world I work in and the, the the sort of ecosystem around startup, we get a lot of people messaging, contacting, whatever, saying, hey, I'd like to run something past you. Of course, often they're asking for investment, but um, generally the people are saying, look, can I just... And this is one of the, strength, the strengths of our business is that we get a lot... I always say that we get access all areas, you know, because mm-hmm. people will come to us with their business idea or maybe a pre-revenue set situation or maybe just after they launch. And they, these are businesses that are not on anybody else's radar, but they're coming to sort of seek our opinion either as individuals because we've you know been there and done it and, as I say, got the T-shirt, or as a business. And they say, I know what Mission Ventures does. I like what you do. Can I get your opinion or something? So, you know, we were just saying actually one of the things that as a, as a team, one of, the, one of our sort of value propositions in a way to partners, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about the kind of organizations we work with, is that we have that access um, we know these people, and we see things before anybody else does. So that's that's great. But yeah, so as a general principle, you know, I'm, I'm motivated by helping the next person on the mountain, as it were, to get to that peak, and and hopefully do it in one piece. What what what's the most unfair bit of the 
industry do you think at the moment? How people are paid or, you know, if you're... Because we have quite an amazing industry in this country, really. Yeah, we do. We have probably the most vibrant food industry in the world. You know, I've, I've, checked, I've tested this with people from other countries and they said, yeah, I know UK is the, by far the most dynamic, the most interesting Because place. we had nothing to go from. We weren't Spanish food or French food. You go to Italy, it's Italian food. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I, you know, I go way back, way back to my first sort of working life in the wine trade was that in France, and I lived in Bordeaux for three years, you know, you might find one Burgundy on the wine list. Um, yeah. so there'd be champagne and there might be a, yeah and that's basically it you wouldn't find any new world wines or anything like that whereas in the UK you go to a restaurant and because we don't well we have now actually got a quite a decent wine trade that's burgeoning but you would find wines from all around the world uh, because yeah. we were you know obviously we've had we were ambivalent we, we're ambivalent we've and had, alcoholic and alcoholic we needed the booze ambivalent alcoholics it's got to be an excellent selection of society <laughs> to be aiming your products at let's focus in on you Paddy let's start with first proper job well, I did serve petrol in our um, in our local village. Um, oh, in the days when you used to go oh, out and actually back. Yeah, yeah. bring them back. Bring them back, absolutely. And I used to serve damn good petrol. I reckon <laughs> people used to come. People came to my came to my service station, and it was it was just a. How do you serve petrol well? Quickly, a leaf of basil on top of every. You do the windows. You do the windows. No, right? I didn't. No, I didn't do that. But I, I just was. Polite, respectful, and get this. I was, you know, a good Catholic boy. If someone said, "Oh, can I?" You know, back in those days, kind of a fiver, of, you know, fiver of um, two star, four star. We, we had quite a, I had quite a dodgy boss. He was the secondhand car salesman, but he had two two pumps on the thing. One was four star, and one was two star. They both got filled up with the same petrol. Did they? Sometimes really? people would say, "Can I have three? You know, we used to have three star, and they would. Uh, and they. <laughs> Does it? Hang on. But two star used to be for two stroke. No, I'm getting it confused. No, no. It, okay, uh, I'm, I'm sure it was two, 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 three, and four. We didn't. They say. If got three and no he said well okay i can make it i can fix it for you <laughs> but if someone said i'll have a fiver which of course pretty much filled up a car in those days and if i was chatting away or whatever and i didn't quite get the trigger to work and i got you know five pound and five p or five pound and ten p i would say no no that's fine i take the fiver i go and i would put my own five or ten p into the till oh, because, I, because the owner had told me you know oh we make such shit margins on this but I'm sure I was wrong because um, he used to drive quite a nice Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like he may have been having you on yeah, a little petrol, bit. Terrible business, <laughs> petrol. That's not working out at all. Don't get in the petrol business. But 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 that was that was as I was a student, making money to go go travelling and what have you for gap year and things. Um, but my first property, I, I left university after a year because I realised I'd made a poor choice. What did you What did you do at uni? I, I did philosophy. Oh, at Jesus Christ! College started London. inserting your head up your own arse. Well, that was the thing. You see, I, I so aged about sixteen or whatever at school. I, I got this idea. And my brother had been in Oxford, and he had, there was a book about Bertrand Russell's book about sort of philosophy. And oh my it up. god! And I got quite excited about it, and I used to sort of like quite pontificate about this. And I thought oh, I could do philosophy. Uh, and uh, f- friends with friends at school would say, "Oh, he's a dude, you're going to go and do what are you going to do with that? You're going to teach philosophy." So uh, I thought, well, like, you know, the Irish. And we came out saying, fucking hell, I'm going to go and bloody go. I'm so, going to do that. So, yeah. So, when no, anyone I explains did philosophy to me, they give me a few concepts. It's exactly as I imagine. It's nonsense. Well, it, it okay. So, 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 my mate Bob from school, who, um, he was a, a great mate. He went, his you know, doctor family said, I'm going to go become a surgeon. And, and he was studying at Middlesex. And I was at Bedford College, London, which was in those days in Regent's Park and later merged with Royal Holloway. Um, and uh, I would go by his rooms in, and I'd rush in in you know, Charlotte Street, I think it was. And I said, Bob, 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 you won't believe this. Xenox paradox of time and motion, you're never going to get out of this room. He said, what are you talking about? He said, I can prove to you. He said, look, you know, to get to that door, you've got to go halfway, haven't you? He said, yeah. He said, yeah, once you've gone halfway, what are you going to get? You've got to go halfway again, haven't you? Halfway again, halfway again. Halfway. And he just looked at me 
got up, they're not saying a word, and walked out of the room. <laughs> and I did sort of feel at that point, I'm not quite sure. They're thought experiments, most of them. And I, I don't mind a thought experiment. Do you know when I like the thought experiments? When they're psychological. When they do some shit to you to show you how your brain, you're not in control. You know, they show you one thing and they ask you a question and then you say some fuck, you, and then they, you know, that, I love that. Yeah, I did it for a year. We didn't have any, in my in my department, we didn't have any compulsory exams until the finals. Um, there was a slight Dickensian air about the place. We were, you know, merged, everything was being merged with Royal Holloway. I, I'd been off for a year. I didn't get a place in the hall, um, so I was stuck in a I was stuck in a, in a basement apartment in uh, just off the Edgware Road with Someone bunch of people, bunch a bunch of people from other school, other other colleges doing different courses. I just didn't really feel a bloke, so I, I, I bailed out after after a year and fell into a barrel of wine. Fell into a barrel. Yeah, I went to Bordeaux. My brother James was living in Bordeaux at the time. He's a commodity trader, and I said, "Look, um, could you get me a job working in a chateau? Because I'm going to go to Australia. I had a place to go to Australia uh, to do a wine marketing diploma for two years." Um, and oh, I thought, okay, like, that was like a thing you managed to hook up. Or yeah, something. yeah. Because in my travels, uh, I'd spent some time working in the wine trade per chance uh, in Australia, and uh, I'd visited uh, what was kind of a bit like the um, Sarinsist Royal Agricultural College kind of place in 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 Oz, and it's where all the vignerons send their kids to train, whatever. And so I had this brilliant idea, which was I would go and do this two year course, uh, and then I would come back and I'd do a short service commission in the army. Seems like a really bad idea. Well, Paddy, and, 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 and then I would set myself up as an importer of Australian wines because I knew all the families. I'd know all the, you know, Where all my mates. Where did the army bit come from? Oh, well, I, I'm old enough to have two parents who both served actively in the war uh, and grandparents actively in the First World War. And I always grew up, you know, the first thing I learned to say was bang, bang, you're dead. So I lived with action man, airfix soldiers, models, the whole lot. And so I was either going to join the Navy, which my dad was in during the war, or the army. And eventually the army won because I discovered I got seasick around, uh, around Land's End in the destroyer, <laughs> smelt of fresh paint and diesel. So yeah, so I went to Bordeaux and I spent, um, I didn't go to Australia. So it was like, I go there for the Vendange, for the vintage uh, in the summer, hang around a bit. And then in February, when the course started, I get to Australia. And after a while I thought, hang on, I'm ma making some amazing contacts here in Bordeaux, kind of pretty much the home of wine. Why would I go off to Australia when I could, you know, the army at this point had turned me down because they said- um, People in Australia not trying to get into Bordeaux. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, yeah. And I, I got all sorts of interesting offers to, to, to to do some other work out there after I've been there for a bit, but the, but the um, uh, the point being that I was um, making amazing contacts, and I thought, okay, I don't actually need to get uh, at the time that I had this idea of the wine Australia, importing Australian wine. Obbins were just starting to improve on the importing of Kangaroos. You know, that was pretty much all you could get, usually in a box. Um, but they were starting to import some decent. Kangaroo was a Aus, brand. Aussie, yeah, some Aussie, Aussie wines. And I thought, well, okay, right, this is a bit of a trend here. I might be able to ride that wave. And that was so I thought I had a brilliant strategy. But then when I, at my interview for the regular commissions board, and they said a bunch of majors and colonels would have sat there with their notepads and said, so, Mr. Willis, what do you intend to do? I said, well, I've got this great idea. I'm going to go to Australia for two years. When I've done all that, uh, I'm going to come back and then I'll go to Sandhurst. And I could see them scribbling down. They're not quite keen enough. Um, yeah. So the message also will be fifty-eight by the time he turns <laughs> up at Santa's. So, so the word came back. Yeah, you know, if you want going to, fly, to fly Australia, scumbag. <laughs> <laughs> When's been your biggest fuck up? I think dodging the army. That's probably not a bad move. Well, yeah, but I've always been a little bit of a regret because I've always sort of hankered after. Ponting around in a nice uniform and going to mess dinners and that it's kind of stuff. Overrated it, when yeah, they it's leave quite... you in the cold all weekend. Well, I mean, you know, no, but to be fair, yeah. a uniform is a nice well, thing on the man. You see, there you go. 
So that was, a, that was probably my... That was actually the first time I remember standing in a phone box, actually, uh, in Highgate, where I was living at the time, um, as I was kind of quitting uni, and, and, um, and having the phone call with the regiment that was sponsoring my sort of application, and they said, I'm terribly sorry, um, Paddy, you've been rejected. I thought, Paddy. And that was the first time I really felt that I'd been given a proper knockback. You know, I'd kind of cruised through school. I'd, I'd, oh, I'd, yeah, one, yeah, of the reasons, one of the reasons I went to Bedford College was because they offered me two E's. You can't, you could reapply a year later, I assume, but... I could, I, yeah, they said, look, if you want to go away and think about it, and if you kind of change your priorities and want to go tomorrow, uh, then we'll sponsor you to go in again, because you had to be sponsored by a regiment. I guess that thing about the army was I didn't read the room, as it were. I didn't recicognise. I had this, because I thought, you know, a little bit back to this idea, just because you can doesn't mean to say you should. I, I didn't figure out what was important at that point to them. And their importance to them was, I want this guy, if they wanted me, I want him there tomorrow, training, leading the men forward or whatever. So th so for me, it's kind of not making that, uh, not making that, having since age dot been, you know, wearing combat sort of home or whatever and fighting, fighting with action. Understand, understand what the other side wants. Yeah. So yeah, so so that in terms of kind of understanding uh, negotiation or empathetic kind of situations uh, with colleagues or anybody for that matter, recognizing that that I was I was trying to do I was trying to sell myself to them in, in terms of yes, have me because it was competitive entry. And I didn't kind of get it. I just was to up my own ass with what I wanted to do and how I was going to do it. I still think and of fresh off of philosophy. Exactly. You told them too much, in a way. Yeah, I was far too honest. Yeah, it's like putting that 5p, 10p into the, into the cash point, I, into cash, cash uh, till, because I overfilled someone's petrol. Whereas I sort of think getting turned down for a job where people are going to try and kill you seems like possibly a good <laughs> possibly thing. Possibly a silver lining, yeah. Now, nowadays, you know, what do you find most uncomfortable as being the businessman you've become as opposed to the soldier? I, I'm i a people pleaser, so I find it very hard. Uh, I, I hate recruitment because I hate saying no to somebody. Um, and when you make, through whatever judgment, you make the wrong decision. I remember we had somebody working for us at, at Plum Baby um, who was brilliant in her own way, but also a complete pain in the ass and was winding everybody else up. Um, and Susan and I would keep talking about this. Oh, we're really going to have to get around. We're going to have to do something. We're going to have to do something. And thank God she actually said, can we have a conversation? And I was all set to sort of literally about that day, I was going to sort of say, look, let's sit down. And, and I said, no, well, you go first. And you're like, <laughs> oh, no, you're going to leave. And she, exactly, and she said, I, I, you know, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. And I thought, fuck, thank you. Brilliant. That is yeah. the bit, though, when, when you have a member of staff that winds other members of staff up, that's when you've really got to do something about it. It's really hard, because also it's quite, often why they, you know, it's the manner. It's not, not because they're professionally inept or whatever, it's just that it's the balance is wrong, uh, and that's where it's quite tough, because it's personal rather than professional. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised Right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others Get set up and on their way Ori Clark's door's always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. 
And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. Mission Ventures, you've said it's not a VC. No. How does it make money? Does it make money? Yeah, we do make money. We make money through charging our partners to deliver programs that help solve, us, help solve a problem for them. When we started out, we were running the UK's first independent accelerator program for UK uh, startups. And we would partner with an SEIS fund or a family office, et cetera. And then we'd say, right, great. How much money are you willing to put up? We'll go away and we'll do a call and we'll get all these businesses in and then we'll jointly we'll decide who you're going to invest in. And then once the business had received the money, we would charge them a fee, a fee for, for delivering them, them the program for their business. And then we would take a few shares at par value. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a sustainable model because we can never really charge, that's the problem with startups, you can never really charge the money that, they, you know the, the the advice and the work is due, and of course, unless you were unless you had a fund to ca- carry on, you know, take up your preemption rights and stuff, you're just gradually going to get diluted down. So, but the model we moved to um, a few years ago, which kind of coincided with the uh, name pivot to Mission Ventures, was to work with partners where we could solve a problem for them. So, our biggest partner currently is Impact on Urban Health, which is part of the Guys and St Thomas's Health Foundation, and one of their big missions is on um, childhood obesity. And, infant, and, and child health. So we run a program called Good Food Program, just about to launch. Uh, we had a, a pilot program over the last few years, just about to launch a new one um, this month, uh, which will be bigger and better and bolder in terms of um, support available to the business owners. So yeah, so we, we, we don't, we don't in, that, in that instance, there's no fund currently. So we, there's no carry for us in terms of any profits on any of the businesses that succeed. But what we do do is we um, were commissioned, if you like, by by the charity in this case to support the businesses and we get paid for doing that. We, we have an, a different kind of relationship with Warburton's the Bakers. Um, we have a corporate venturing partnership with them called Batch Ventures LLP, which is where uh, using money off the Warburton's balance sheet, we will jointly agree which businesses are interesting that have something to do with the bakery. Is that also under the title Mission Ventures? Uh, well, Mission Ventures is uh, is the stakeholder in Batch Ventures right. alongside Warburton's. And what that allows them to do is through Batch as the vehicle, uh, which is a 50-50 JV, but obviously the, any economic benefits generated are biased towards the person with the money, so the Warburton family. But it, but it means that we're, we're motivated throughout the lifetime of that investment to make sure it's a good investment return because we're going to get a carry percentage on that. And it gives them sight of interesting stuff that sits outside of their core business. They don't have to be involved in any of the day-to-day. We do all of that, manage the relationship with them or for them. And I've often sort of described that particular role, if you like, as a little bit like being, you know, there used to be the old expression of, you know, children should be seen but not heard. And I think in the corporate world, startups should be seen but not heard. So we're the nanny, the tutor, the governess, whatever you want to call it, that takes the kids on a journey, occasionally shows them at bedtime. Because that's exactly how startups feel about investors as well, just to be clear. Put up the money and then shut the fuck up. Well... I think your point is that um, take the money and run, and you, you yeah. never, never have to speak to them again. Whereas I will, t- I will always say to anybody bothered, bothered to listen is, you know, you got to look at any investment uh, or investor as a essentially it's a marriage. You know, they're in, they're in, they're in there for the duration. But I, I, you know, I think the the key point about that whole it's like a marriage is about the courtship. 
because I think that's what founders don't understand. You know, the number of founders that ring me up and go, I've met this VC and they think just like us and and they want exactly what we want. And they don't appreciate that the whole point of VCs is to invest in things. So if they think it's a good business, of course they're going to tell them what they want to hear. And the founder as well is on their absolute best behaviour because they want the VC to invest in them. So neither party is seeing the real them. Yeah, true, true. Everyone's and then they sh- everyone's end up pretending. in the marriage and they're suddenly in the bed corset, together. The corset comes off and the high heels. And but, the, well, and the, well, this is, but this is it. I mean, a massive amount of course. So coming back to marriage concept... Um, there's a huge amount, and, and if you get to point of, you know, really stretch this analogy out, you know, there's lots of foreplay, okay? Everyone's really happy, everyone's having a great time, and then you you cut the deal and it's all done. But then you're married, and it's a little bit like, what's the, what's the Australian uh, for foreplay? Are you awake? Are you awake? <laughs> yeah. So, so that's when, that's when, that, that, that's when, that's when they're in bed with you, and you haven't said boo to them all day, uh, and suddenly, shit, I can't make payroll on Friday. Yeah. And then it's, are you awake? I need more money. You know, it's amazing how often I get, and I re- very recently got phoned by a client saying, who's in the middle of a funding round, saying, <laughs> I'm thinking about taking a really small investment from somebody else of just like 50K or something. Do you think I should tell the investors who I'm negotiating the transaction with right now? Or would it be better to just not mention it? I'm just not going to mention it. I'm like... But if you don't mention it, they're probably fine with it. They probably don't give a fuck. But if you don't mention it, and they then subsequently find out, they're going to be like, well, so we've lost a bit of trust here. Yeah. Whereas if you just frigging tell them everything, then have the conversation and work out whether it, you know they're happy or not. You've kept that relationship. And you, you know the, mar- the other thing about the marriage analogy is it's all about the relationships between the people. What's um, the biggest problem or facing this business, do you think? Well, I mean, in our case, it's a balance of... Because we, we've all come from... Well, I'd say we've all... You know, those of us that are in the business are mostly product people. So they've built brands and products or they work for brands. And actually, we're a, public, we're a professional services business at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so we're trading know-how and time and, and experience. Uh, trading time and experience. So part of our challenge is, if you like, in making sure that, because our inherent nature, um, you know, we're also cut pretty much the same cloth as we want to be helpful. So you'd always end up giving more time and spending more, more, you know. And that's not necessarily brilliant if you're trying to figure out how do you run the most profitable operation. So you're spending more man hours and you're having to count that up and think, actually, we thought we are making X margin on this job, but we're cutting it by X or Y because we're, we spent an extra day working on that an extra work, workshop. So that's, that's, I guess, our biggest challenge is that, uh, is that moving to a new way of working, which is to think much more like a professional services business where, where time is the key. But startups, I think, are difficult from that. Time you know, is everything. Being, being a, a professional services business that does a lot with startups, they're very, very high maintenance. Yeah, yeah. You know, when very you get needy. the phone call going, do you think I should wear the blue jacket or the black jacket to the pitch? And I'm like, I yeah, do. Yeah. Well, that's the problem being a girl. You see, I don't get those calls. But, but <laughs> you know, but I get... And <laughs> but the, I know what you mean, yeah. The calls where they cry for 15 minutes and you're just saying, it's going to be okay. I promise you it's going to be okay. Just calm down. And I'm like, can I bill for this? Can I bill for the crying? What's, what's the hardest thing uh, you do then in this? I mean, is this, this is taking up all of your time. This is, this is your job. Inverted it's, commas. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, earlier this year, I, I handed over my CEO chair to 
our head of operations, Louis, who'd actually worked for me before at the uh, the charity I mentioned. And it's been fantastic watching how he... So he's worked for me for probably, well, I'm going to say, six plus years now. And it's been fantastic to see how, you know, a guy in his 20s has, has, has developed and grown. And this really, really confident, really accomplished uh, guy who I have absolute confidence in. And in that's amazing that you were willing to... Like, you know, so many people cannot give up that element of control. And it's not easy. I mean, it's taken me, you know, I went through a kind of a great, a grieving phase. I'd even say I was mildly depressed at the beginning of the year because I thought, well, what am I doing now? And I'd, I can still see his calendar. I think, oh, shit, I really want to go to that meeting. Yeah, but I'm not invited. You know? <laughs> uh, and that's really hard. But yeah, so I think that's the, so, the, but yeah, so so I'm now looking and hence is referenced earlier on the conversation about, you know, um, leaning on founders to do more around education is is what what are the other things that I'm passionate about that I could um, put my skills and experience and networks towards. So is that what you're most excited about? Well, I'm very excited about the potential for mission ventures. You know, everything we're doing now is kind of the culmination of a couple of years or so work for refining how we do what we do uh, no, so mechanically, what are the processes and the services we provide to the businesses we work with and then figuring out our value proposition to our partners. And I think now we've got a really great, unique proposition um, where, you know, essentially we're, we're out there, you know, building businesses and brands that can help change the food system and make it better. Plus make a bit of wicked tequila. <laughs> Healthy. I don't, I hate tequila, but apparently it's only about 2% Every, of the UK market. Everybody hates the taste of tequila, but tequila is the best alcohol in the world. It actually makes you just want to party. You just feel... Wicked, you know? Oh my God. It's the only thing I, you know, my wife, if she, if she drinks shots, oh, give her tequila. It's the only thing she can drink, basically, because it wakes her up. Everything else, she doesn't drink. I'm basically. sorry, but I'm, I'm English and therefore gin will always take yeah, centre stage. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Well, it's a bit of a hackneyed one because it's true of life generally, but it's kind of trust your gut. A number of times when I've made a decision, possibly about a person, maybe around a hire, uh, maybe about a business relationship or, you know, any other situation. And your gut is something, you know, not really sure this is the right what thing to do. What do you think your gut is? It's part of your brain. My problem with trusting your gut is that, like, it's like the quietest voice in your head. It's more of a feeling than a voice. I sometimes worry that your gut is fear. Yes, it can be, but then sometimes that's not a bad thing because your gut might be to say, I don't think I should go into that lion's den. My theory about what your gut is is that that life's far too complicated for your brain. You, you know, you can't ration out in sentences, but you get a feeling of a situation you've been in before. Um, you know, so apparently when you drown in the life goes before your eyes, the theory is is your brain shows you everything it knows because you're dying. And then it's, it tries to give you every possible situation. You can say, is any of these help? <laughs> are, we, are we really going oh, to right, fight? Okay, is, is that this, what it is? is? Yeah, that's the okay. theory of what it is. And it makes a lot of sense, you know. And, and you have this moment, you've had this experience. You've ever been in a very stressful situation, say a cupboard's falling down or something. You get this very intense thing that time sort of slows down and your brain does this sort of, and you have this sort of like, you have this picture in your head, just suddenly like, oh yeah, I could do that. You know, it, it thinks of things, everyone in the room, it sort of lists to you. But it's often you know, it's your head that's rationalising the situation, saying, no, actually, I'm sure it'll be fine. He, he's, a, he's a good guy, it'll be fine. But actually, it guts them. No, you're based on your experiential life and people like that. This is not going to work out well. But you're thinking, no, 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 because, you know, if you do this, then we'll get this deal, we'll get that situation. Um, and, 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 and you quite often are feeling uncomfortable in life. Quite often things aren't going right. Yeah, and you can't, put, you can't always put a finger on what it is. That's why, you know, it's, yeah, you know yeah. I can't really just got this gut feel that it's not quite right. And I, and I think, um, but yeah, generally, I, I would say, you know, 
best piece of advice, can't think of who gave it to me, but is, you know, trust, trust your gut. You might still make a different decision, but consider it. Factor it in. Yeah, factor it in. Top three reads, pods, records, doesn't have to be three, doesn't have to be all the categories. Just give us some good stuff that we can I, go and I'm, read. I'm ashamed to say I don't, I don't get around to listening to as many podcasts as I what? should. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, changing, you're going to have to leave. No, no, I, but I have, I have very exclusive, obviously. Uh, there are certain ones I do listen to. But uh, records, I mean, they've got there's so many to choose from. But if uh, people have often asked me for business books. I have an old favourite which goes all the way back to the very early days of our building Plum Baby, which was Purple Cow by Seth Godin. And for anybody who doesn't know the story... Um, Purple Cows look a bit like Plum Babies. Well, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so my my one's so weathered and, and, uh, and, and bleached. It's, it's more brown than purple. But the whole point being... <laughs> what are we talking about? Driving through the... Driving, you know, so, you know, <laughs> Seth with his family and young kids in the back, driving through the French countryside. And uh, it's getting a bit tiring because the kids keep saying, oh, wow, mum, dad, cow. And they kept looking at cows and they feel, yeah, that's a cow. A cow. And then after a while, you know, driving through the you know, auto routes, whatever, the, the kids started to get a bit quieter. And they'd seen quite a lot of cows and it was going to be boring. But, but he said, ah, but what if they'd seen a purple cow? Mm. That would have, you know, stirred Milka. up again. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So his point is, what makes you purple? What makes your business, your brand, your company purple? So um, that's what I think is really interesting is how do you stand out? It doesn't matter what how you're do doing. How do you peacock, basically? How, yeah, how do you, well, how do you, how do you just stand out? You know, and, and I think there's ways and means you can do that now, particularly I think social media is much um, a great help for people to punch up their weight, small brands and small businesses. Um, so that's one of my absolute favourites. It's the kind of re- thing you can read, you know, our train journey, whatever. Um, it's a small book, which always, I think, finds helpful. Uh, one I listened to, so I'm just trying to get into this idea of listening to books. So when we drove out to Scotland earlier in the year, uh, Matthew Syed, who I hadn't kind of clocked who he Love was. But, but I, yeah, I, I realised I, I realize this is the guy who I occasionally... Now, hear if you on, need to c- listen to a podcast sideways, it's very... Worthwhile. Right. Well, so yeah, so I occasionally hear on the radio, like, you know, I listen to Radio 4 a lot, and then I might read an article, and I think he writes for the Times. And he wrote a book, written several books, but the only one I've listened to so far is Rebel Ideas. And it's about this whole concept. Yeah, how concept, this whole concept of how often we fall into this trap of essentially sort of surrounding ourselves with the familiar, and then that is to the detriment of our society or try business or whatever. And the one that always stands out in my head because it's the very first example he gives is the CIA um, and why it was that they didn't pick up what became 9-11. Mm. Because basically they were all white guys in, in white shirts and black ties and they all looked and sounded like, and they, they, they didn't have enough experience and people in there, although they had a few, but they weren't listening to them. They said, no, 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 no. So they had every single, and he goes through catalogs, every piece of information they had, which to anybody else, if they'd had, let's say, they put somebody in, or they had somebody senior on the team who was a Muslim or of some other ethnicity, they would have picked up on this is what this is what these messages are saying. You know, if you read your if you know your Quran, this language means this, and they didn't get it because they were Harvard-educated white guys, um, and and so that so it's, you know, rebel ideas is all about how do you kind of introduce um, different thinking to um, break the break the norm. Rebel so, ideas. Rebel ideas. Right. So that's a that's a great one. There are others. I've got I've got another one in 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 my audio file which to, to listen. I've got to go on a long journey in order. To, it's about twelve hours. So I've got to, I've got to drive my parents through France. So this oh, well, is sounding okay. really They're good. Brilliant. Yeah, okay. Do they wear their own headphones in the back? Do no, like but I've got to find something system? that everybody can listen to. How about uh, a wonderful um, podcast? My dad wrote a porno. 
Yeah, I love it. We'd, but we, I just we, don't think we it drove the lengths of France, pissing ourselves laughing. And there was one time when the rain was pouring down, and we were dry, you know overtaking a lorry. Can't see where the hell you're going. Windscreen wipers can't keep up with the spray. I've got tears streaming down my face <laughs> listening to... Um, um, there are bits of it that are so funny, I thought I was going to be sick. Yeah, I know, yeah. crazy. Um, no, so if, but for a novel, uh, one of my absolute favourites um, is Catch-22, uh, Joseph Heller. Oh, the, 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 like the film. What is the, the basic plot of that? Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, it's, it's so, uh, one of the most it's brilliant... It's not actually... And, and I, love, I, love, well, I love this entrepreneurial idea, which is that... Um, uh, you know, I think it's Yossarian. I think Yossarian's the main character, but... Um, there's this guy whose name I forget, um, who works out that he, he's basically a moneymaker. Uh, he's a de- you know, he's, he's an entrepreneur, and he ends up being paid by the Germans to bomb his own airfield in Italy, the American airfield, because it's easier, it's cheaper for them to pay him to do it than it is for them to send the bombers over. <laughs> No, it's brilliant. It's a true story. No. No, 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 it's just a brilliant read. It's I love it. So yeah, it's okay, one of my favourites. Check that out. Yeah. Okay, congratulations. That brings us to our favourite part of the show, the business versus bullshit quickfire round. D, please cue the music. This is where we're going to reel off some key terms. You've got to tell us whether you think it is business or bullshit. Are you ready? I am ready. Uh, Diversity quotas. Oh, business. Stand up meetings. Having a meeting standing up. Have you ever had a meeting standing up? Yes, and I kind of get it, but I think if it's enforced, then it's bullshit. Caffeine. Oh, absolutely necessary. Uh, business. <laughs> business. Yeah, business. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I've just got back on, and I have to say, this help. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't drink coffee, but I do drink about eight cups you of tea you a day. Just suddenly you go, oh, what's going on? I can't do anything, and you have to have another one. That's the, that's the that's the um, meeting agendas. Having an agenda in a meeting. Uh, I'm not very good at that, but it's, it, it, no, I think it's business. I think you can spend too much time faffing around. Um, but you don't come with one. I have no agenda. You... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hour-long meetings. Um, well, as being prescriptive, hour-long. Yes. Well, oh. we always set them as an hour, isn't it? Bullshit, shouldn't we be like, you know? Oh, yeah, that's bullshit. We should be, we should be setting... You're leading the witness. 30, 30 yes. minutes, yeah. 30, yeah, I mean, I, I always try and uh, set 30 minute. you know, if you're putting it in the calendar, if you're inviting someone to a Zoom or a phone call or whatever, I'll always try and shorten it. Um, it's always, well, I was always told if you want someone um, to be on time, you don't make it on the hour or half past whether you make it quarter to two or ten to. Really? That yeah, helps yeah. people be on time? Yeah, so you change an unusual time. You fuck with their brains. You fuck with their brains and it makes sure they turn up on time. Ah, oh, that's genius. Okay, right. Not guaranteed. Don't, uh, I, I accept. All my meetings start at one fifteen now, but I'll be late. And you will. <laughs> It'll become but that's not because it's one fifteen. Yeah. Uh, office dogs. Oh, well, I can see a canine in the corner of there. Feel free um, to disagree, though. No, I love dogs. Um, We have a dog. I would take him, uh, I would bring him to London if I could. But um, again, it's kind of, if it's like there for for effect, then it's bullshit. But if it's there because uh, it's actually helping the team and the owner, you know, leaves that hound there, then yeah, absolutely. Where are we? Carbon credits. (sighs) Oh. Uh, I think that's bullshit. Swearing in meetings. Never done it in my life. I've um, <laughs> heard a few expletives during the course of today. I know it's not a meeting. I, I think if it, it depends. Uh, it, it, not, not, not in excess, but um, I think it's fine. Uh, you're going. Um, pub lunches. 
bullshit. Um, B Corps. Gotta say, earn a bit less. Uh, that's a tricky one. Um, I'm gonna say bullshit only because it's become a brand, and I think you should be aspiring to do what B Corps stands for without having to have the brand. Do good for good rather than for a brand. Yeah, if you're doing it for the sake I need to have B Corps on my packaging or my letterhead, then that's bullshit. Uh, non-disclosure agreements. <laughs> um, bullshit. I'm, I'm li- hurt. I'm yeah, very yeah, hurt. Yeah, that was hard. I had to pause. But I'll get bit. over it because I agree with you. Unlimited holidays. Oh, I think that's bullshit. LinkedIn. Mm, that's business. I, I, I think LinkedIn has become a lot more useful. Um, yeah, I think it's business. Brexit. <sighs> Don't get me started. Bullshit. <laughs> NFTs. Oh. <laughs> that is bullshit. <laughs> bullshit. Bitcoin. Oh, bullshit. Very good. Thank you. Excellent. And come to the end of the quick far round. You scored 12. <laughs> Okay, so this is where we give you 30 seconds, Paddy, to pitch your company, uh, book, whatever you want to pitch right now. I've not written a book. Yeah. I don't have a podcast. Um, but You do have a company that's doing stuff. I have a company that's doing right interesting now. stuff, yeah. So I would like to plug Mission Ventures uh, because we are all about building a better food system with, that's healthier, fairer, and more sustainable. And we do that in partnership with large organizations, be they corporate, be they not-for-profit, who are seeking to solve a problem that they find hard to do on their own. So we provide the professional expertise, the market knowledge, the know-how, the networks, and the access to help them leverage Oh, that's a word that probably should go onto the list of, not, of <laughs> yeah, leverage, leverage and stakeholders. Yeah, let's put stakeholders on there too. Um, uh, yeah, and to, to help, because we believe in the power of challenger brands and challenger brands have the ability to disrupt and to move the markets forward. And uh, what we're demonstrating is actually it is possible to, um, to improve by supporting what, what, what? them. So there you have it. That was this week's episode of Business Without Bullshit. And we'll be back with BWB Extra on Thursday. Until then, it is ciao.